Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Helen. I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week... We're going to talk about the Great Repeal Bill. Not the Great Repeal Bill anymore. Not even a repeal bill, but the EU withdrawal bill. We build bunkers to prepare for our new Reesmog overlords. And you ask us, what is the best election to rewatch? Let's talk about Brexit, Stephen. Woohoo! Yeah, I want to talk about the Great Repeal Bill, which, if uh, you're listening to this on Thursday, has started its stately, well, it's continuing its stately passage, the House of Commons. It's currently at the stage it's known as. It's the EU withdrawal bill now. Yes, because you're not allowed to put adjectives in bills. That's you're... one of the things I think that we learned about this. So, so there, are, there are a couple of reasons why the Commons clerks were like, no, mate, you can't call it that. Otherwise, everything would be called, like, the Super Amazing Prisons Bill. Yeah, like, one, they're just like, they are very, very keen to prevent sort of a is a massive lad bill. Yeah, like American-style bill naming. The, the second is they are... It, it's not a... You know, it doesn't... It's actually not a repeal bill. It doesn't bill. repeal a, anything. It's like, a kind of smush across. There are literally so many, like, nouns for what the EU withdrawal bill does that are appropriate. And in what, looking back, should have been an early warning sign about just how <laughs> unhinged Theresa May can be, she managed to pick literally one of the few that does not apply to the EU withdrawal bill. So for anybody who hasn't got into this exciting bit of legislative fandango, we're currently at the second reading stage of the bill, which means there'll be a couple of days of debate, then a, a division of vote, which, but which we're expecting to be relatively uncontroversial. Labour have signaled they're going to vote against it, but unlikely to be enough Tory rebels for that to be a problem. It then goes to committee stage, the best of all the stages, where people can put down amendments, they can kind of knock it about, we'll see where we're going. That's where we might expect a bit more rustling in the undergrowth, Stephen, but you've written a blog about whether or not the Tory rebels are actually going to be all mouth and no trousers. Well, so this is the thing, if you talk to, say, a composite Labour MP, you know, let's call them like Jeremy Blair, right? It's just a name, right? <laughs> and you, you sit down and you talk to this person and they go... I was going to go for Wes Phillips. I mean, actually, I realise a composite Labour MP would be incredibly confused about what they think about the EU. <laughs> Let's imagine you're talking to a composite pro-European okay. Labour MP. So you're talking to like a weird... Ben Hoey. Yeah, like yeah, a weird like combination of Ben Bradshaw and Emma Dencode, right? So okay. they're very clear on what they feel about the EU, but very confused about how they feel about Tony Blair, right? And basically their complaint isn't the average Conservative MP who they agree with on the European Union is, as one of them did put it to me, they're like, they're incredibly loud in the pages of the Times. They are incredibly silent in the chamber. Uh, so, you know, Anna Subri will go on the Today programme and go, you know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, Theresa May. Theresa May will just be like, you what, fam? 
and Anna Subri will go, by come and have a go, I meant I will, of course, vote with you. On the Conservative side, their, uh, their take is, well, look, actually, there are about 100 Labour MPs plus the leader of the Labour Party who are all fairly hard Brexity, whether through conviction or because they want their constituents to stop kvetching at them about the free movement of people. So why on earth Cough, should Caroline I... Caroline Flint. So, Cough. yeah, so why on earth should I, um, I stick my head up above this particular parapet when my vote is going to be sort of completely ignored by one of your guys. Now, the interesting thing about the EU withdrawal bill is because Labour's position has softened slightly and because they are going to oppose the Henry VIII clauses, which are... Uh, let's talk about those in a second. Yeah, I've got big love for the Henry VIII yeah. clauses. But because, because Labour's decided to oppose it at second reading, we actually will get an idea of how big the chunk of Labour MPs who will vote in the most Eurosceptic way possible, regardless of what the leadership tells them to do is. Well, that'd be really interesting, because what Labour leave was about 12 or so MPs. It was kind of roughly a dozen, including, you know, people would obviously think of, like, Kate Hoey and Frank Frank Field. So it'll be interesting to see who else is going to stay with them. But, yeah, let's talk Henry VIII, because... So, tell me if I've got this right, a Henry VIII clause. In order, basically, because it's not repealing EU legislation, what this bill is doing is seamlessly moving a huge amount of EU legislation into British law with the idea that then you will have to kind of unpick things afterwards. What it needs to do in order to do that is grant ministers a great deal more power in order to where, for example, in a bill it says, you know, the kind of European Commission, they can sort of cross it out and write in British government. However, there's allegedly a kind of sunset clause on this that you say it's all of these powers expire two years from exit date, but you're also allowed to move the exit date. And I think from the very informative Wikipedia page on the EU withdrawal bill, I found out that Dominic Cummings, one of the big architects of Vote Leave, has actually criticised the Henry VIII clauses because technically you could use them to undo the entirety of the bill and indeed EU withdrawal, right? It is an enormous amount of power to put into the hands of their further like unscrutinised then into the hands of ministers. Yeah, so basically, if if it passes as is, and the interesting thing is, other than Dominic Cummings, I am yet to encounter a lever who's gone, wait a second, if there is an establishment plot to have a soft Brexit at the 11th hour, this is a this brilliant, is really me- a brilliant mechanism to do it. Yeah, brief diversion. I am surprised, considering how frightened the average Tory MP is of Jeremy Corbyn, how they are also still concomitantly relaxed about incredibly authoritarian measures and things which increase executive overreach. If I were as worried about Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister as the average Tory MP, you better believe I would be even more in love with the ECJ and judicial oversight than I am already. Uh, I just find it remarkable that that has triggered no rethinking at all. But the thing is, you then use statutory instruments and the like to change things instead of kind of... Which are kind of essentially just like a proclamation, really, more rather than a a full-blown legislative kind of method. And it does make it... Because it's faster, it makes it harder for sort of, you know, troublesome backbenchers or opposition MPs to go, uh, hang about, why are you doing this? And there is a slight problem that you do have to have some way of not forcing Parliament to have a vote every time you want to go... I know how it says and this regulation will be enforced by the Commission, but actually it's going to be enforced by the new UK quango for... Well, that food, is, but that it does lead you to a really interesting point, right? Which is that this bill essentially it anticipates the creation of a huge number of scrutinising and, and regulatory bodies, which currently don't exist. And as far as I can see, you don't have a massive plans yet to exist because that's still part of the negotiation they've just published the science policy Mm -hmm. papers this week and basically the science policy papers say we would basically like it just to be like it is now 
if that's possible. In fact, what maybe we'd like it to have like closer cooperation than the EU currently has with any non-EU state. So like what we've got now, and if not that, then a better deal than en- literally anyone else has got. And I just, I think Rob Hutton Bloomberg tweeted it, was saying, well, it's unsurprising that they haven't kind of come out to do any questions on this because there are no answers to the questions of, you know, it is so obvious from that that the position is, we really wish we weren't leaving the EU. Make it like as much like being in the EU as possible, please. On the kind of science stuff, right, there is a really strong incentive for the idea that you continue to pay in and everyone benefits from having a, a frictionless response research border the difficulty because most because that's the thing isn't it most scientific research projects now are multi-disciplinary and well not multi-disciplinary but international something like CERN has got something like 40 countries that are involved in that right if we kind of unilaterally did that funding would be such a massive massive problem for scientific research the difficulty though with with that sort of general Brexit attitude right is our listeners will have noticed this new kind of brainworm that's going around bits of the right going, we need to call their bluff and go for no deal. One, oh. like, actually no deal. It's not just catastrophic. It's actually unimaginable. It's one of those things where well, no one can describe with, what it's um, like without with actually Lee describing on, a, a deal. On uh, Yeah, exactly. I had exactly that argument on Sunday night on uh, Five Live with Ruth Lee, who was a, a pretty sane Brexiteer who said, I wish I hadn't put the £350 million on the bus. You know, that was obviously a lie. And you were like, oh, are, are we allowed to say that how exciting but um you know i said what about i know one of your obsessions the open skies agreement right i said what is the government's plan if there is no deal for getting anguished pensioners home from alicante uh, you know she said why well, how do they get home from switzerland i said because they have a deal like, <laughs> yeah. like it's a different deal but they still have it like they still have a deal but crucially yeah one everything all nation states do either hinges on deals or warfare right and there is really no middle ground right well that's cheery right. thanks for that um there's deals warfare or it not happening right those those are your options right but the other problem is the uk government isn't even prepared for you know a, let's say like a, a good but patchy deal right a, a deal with even the same number of gaps as the EU-Canada deal, right? Generally seen as quite a good, you know, like, n- relatively non-acrimonious for which a trade took, what, deal. Like seven setter. years to yeah, do? Yeah, but, but also kind of, yeah, one which, like, broadly both sides are quite happy with, right? That deal, the UK government is not at the moment big enough to deal with the responsibilities that would involve coming home, right? The UK government is not staffed up to deal with more customs inquiries or more border inquiries. The UK government is not staffing up to do its own food hygiene checks about whether or not beef from Argentina is safe, right? It is, you know, all of these things that the EU does for it currently, the UK is very much not actually... This idea of, like, we can prepare for no deal, it's like the British government isn't even adequately preparing for many plausible deals and could emerge from the process. I mean, I think with the ability of ministers to change things without having to consult Parliament, there are lots of ways you could do that. For example, provided you could have a stipulation about like-for-like changes, right? There is, I mean, there are lots of reasons why it's a waste of our time and money and we've decided that we are probably going to have a situation where we continue to pay some money to the EU for access, but we also pay for our own people to go around and poke meat in an abattoir somewhere in South America. However, no one thinks it's unreasonable to go, okay, instead of you having to get a kite mark from this European Commission body, you have to get it from, like, the British Department of International Beef. People do think it's unreasonable for you to be able to change workers' rights, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there are lots of things the government could do to soften it but the big question is yes whether or not 
Tory MPs will actually, when it comes to committee stage, put their money where their red box column is. And um, <laughs> and one of the things that some of the harder right Tory MPs keep doing that is not very helpful is popping up to say, one, we'll be able to get rid of all that pesky red tape, which is exactly the thing that they should not be doing, because when they say red tape, people on the other side hear maternity pay, you know, ability not to be boiled I mean, in oil. that is actually what people... Well, no. That's both unfair and slightly too fair. When, I was about to say, because it, it, it's unfair to say that when people say that they mean maternity leave. On the whole, they, they, they don't actually mean that because on the whole, what they're saying is brainless, right? But at, you know, actually, if you if you look at most red tape and regulation, you are talking about environmental protections. Yeah, in, in, you know, in, look at you know, America. Work, I mean, like, if you want any kind of vision of, of what less red tape means, look at the states which are currently underwater, but they've slashed funding to Environmental Protection Agency. Look at the fact that most states don't have any federally mandated maternity leave, so some American women have to use their holiday entitlement in order to go off and give birth. I mean, one of the weirdest moments of the whole campaign with me was going to the Women for Brexit launch and hearing like a weird video of Pretty Patel talking about how the suffragettes would have voted for Brexit. I didn't want to go quite a few of the suffragettes were fascists, so you might, this might not be the quite the thing you want to go for. But this whole idea that actually, yeah, that this bonfire of red tape will be a good thing for women, will be a good thing for workers, will be a good thing for the environment, is for the birds. See, that's me to using a Stephen Bushism. So, are you hashtag I'm with him? Oh, God, don't. It makes me so, so upset. So, Jacob Rees-Mogg has had quite the Captain week. Captain leader legend. Don't. don't, don't. It's, I'm holding you personally responsible. Anusha and I will have to come around and put a horse's head in your bed when he becomes Prime Minister. So, there was a story in the Times on Monday morning about Theresa May's likely cabinet reshuffle, which I, she seems to be holding out as the kind of sword of Damocles that will get her through the conference season without too many obvious um, noises off. And it had some good mentions in there about people who might be promoted for example johnny mercer who i've been on a panel with and i um i think is a, you know a very good and thoughtful tory backbench mp done great campaigns on mental health and people leaving the armed forces tom tugendhat who quite a few of the lobby journalists on the right get very excited about i haven't, I haven't met him so i can't um, i can't offer you an opinion there but also a mention that rising star jacob reese mogg would probably soon find himself with a, a high level position conservative home which is a website for Tory activists, i.e. the most people most likely to be involved in the final stage of that leadership contest, put Jacob Rees-Mogg ahead of all the other candidates, even David Davis, although behind none of the above, essentially, um, as their favourite pick to succeed to Theresa May. And then he was on the Daily Politics saying, well, of course, you know, I, I, you might as well, you know, uh, offer to be Pope. I couldn't, who would offer me such a thing? You know, and also I'm such a rebel. I couldn't compromise my enormously deep principled held beliefs on Brexit. So, my feeling for a long time has been that he is angling for promotion. He ran for the Treasury Select Committee and lost, was second to Nicky Morgan. And I think, yeah, I think absolutely he would want to be in the Cabinet. Maybe if only to be in the Cabinet to flounce out of it in a big Brexit-related half at some point. But I mean, also, you know, like, oh, you know I can't remember who the origin of quite there. Just like, you know, you know, if any 100 MPs, 82 of them want to be Prime Minister, right? And... 50 of them believe they could become prime minister, right? Which is one of the reasons why getting them to agree on anything is so difficult. Obviously, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, socially conservative, in many ways the sort of avatar of lots of things than the average NS podcast listener dislikes about the Conservative Party, has a tricky path to becoming Tory leader. Assuming he is brought into the 
to ministerial rank in the next reshuffle, which I think is likely, partly because if, if I were in Downing Street and I wanted to extend Theresa May's lifespan, you need to show people that she is going to try and do a Michael Howard style, bringing in the kind of possible leadership candidates. And also and it will put, I mean, will smother him very effectively. He won't be able to go on TV and have thoughts about whatever he wants to have thoughts on. He's going to have to have thoughts about whatever incredibly dull brief they give him. Like, yeah. CF, poor old Michael Govin Defra. It, yeah, it is a, a good way of, like, neutering people who can, can otherwise be difficult. Yeah, and obviously under the Conservative system, because some pundits are going like, oh, Corbyn shows anything can happen, which is a bit like going, oh, Trump shows Le Pen can win. It's just like, well, Trump would have lost under any other presidential system in the world. Yeah, but so, I do think that the way the Tory leadership contest is structured actually means Rees-Mogg could win, right? Yes, I mean, so if you imagine a composite Tory MP, let's call them Philip Hammond, Wait, that's a real MP. Um, <laughs> Philip yeah, Rudd. Philip Rudd, right? That's a bit Romanian, isn't it? No, it should be... What about Liam Rudd? Liam Rudd, right? You, and you sit down with Liam Rudd, right? And you talk to them about the next leadership election. They go, oh, I quite like um, Amber. She's good. Shame about the majority, though. And then depending on how much they like Amber, they might go... But, you know, we could just, yeah, we're the Tory party. She could just be like, I've always loved Holland and the Deepings. And it would all, <laughs> it would always, it would all be fine. But they might, if they're a bit on the right, go, oh, do you have Dominic Raab is good. But then the average Tory MP will go, the important thing is we have to make sure that none of the following get through to the membership. And then they say... Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, Andrea Leadsom, Rees-Mogg and Dominic Raab, right? And if you think about the last Conservative leadership election where Theresa May basically became the safe haven for Liberal Conservatives because they thought, oh, she gave that nasty party speech. She'll be one of us, right? In one of those <laughs> I'm sure the which, vans were just an oversight, just, really. I mean, who hasn't issued go-home vans? Uh, well, I think the thing is, is a lot of Cameroon-inclined Conservatives were like, Cameron occasionally did things that made me uncomfortable like that, but he didn't mean it, right? Mm-hmm. And then it was just like, oh, no, it turns out she completely meant that, right? But So she was able to reach out to large chunks of the right of the party and basically became the safe haven for the left of the party, right? But Andrea Leadsom still got 86 votes in the final reckoning. So if you think about the fact in the next Tory leadership election, when they throw that final two down to the membership, will be Amber Rudd and not Amber Rudd. And then the members will go, not electing this pro-European communist... And then they will pick not Amber Rudd, right? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, someone said that one of the things that's a crucial factor in the Tory leadership candidate is the Daily Mail, which is the newspaper read by people of the same demographic who are Tory activists, right? Yeah. Who you can see them... You know, Quentin Letts, I can't remember exactly which century exactly it was, but said, you know, he, Rees Mogg is the candidate, you know, he's the honourable member for either the 18th century or the early 19th century. It was, an, it was a century that is a previous century, is what I'm saying. But they, you know, they probably like his hardline views on abortion. You know, they can spin his, you know, his Catholicism as just being kind of very traditionalist value, right? You are not going to get a searing indictment of his values there in the kind of the newspaper of choice of Tory activists. My instinct is the next Conservative leader will will be to Theresa May's right, just because of the kind of parliamentary arithmetic. I think Rees-Mogg's chances have receded significantly because he's become more of a thing. But basically, of those four candidates who Philip Rudd wants to stop, it's just about mathematically plausible that you end up with a situation where... You can't stop all of them. Where, you, where, yeah, well, yeah. The Tory right only has to be lucky once. Yeah, they only have to be lucky once. You only have to sort of 
mess up when you're trying to, you know, because there was lots of... I mean, we were very lucky, really, that Michael Gove detonated Boris Johnson. Otherwise, really, that could very well have... He could be Prime Minister right now, right? Yeah, I mean, I think Mike, Boris Johnson would be better for the Brexit process than Theresa May, but... Ooh, okay, well, we'll come back to that cheeky little hot take later. Yes. <laughs> some future podcast. What I was writing about was the um, was the kind of media attitude to it. And I think, you know, obviously it's fine. And um, he's been on Good Morning Britain this week. And actually, that's where the latest quotes about him saying, you know, even in cases of rape, he's uh, opposed to abortion. He's against gay marriage because he's a, he's, a, he's a very traditionalist Catholic. And you might say those are his private views and he's entitled to them, which I entirely agree they, they are and he is. However, his voting record is also on that measure as well. And I think for abortion particularly, there are quite a few other big voices who keep quite quiet about it. Like Jeremy Hunt, for example, wants a reduction in the time limit. Maria Miller has previously talked about a reduction in the time limit. You can see a kind of easy, like a chipping away of that kind of stuff that the progressive side has been used to thinking was a settled argument and it could very quickly not become a settled argument again. So my big contention about it is the sort of lol, lol, look at his monocle stuff is really bad because if there's one lesson from the 2017 election you want to take, it's the way that the Tories treated Jeremy Corbyn as a joke right up to the moment they tried to convince you he was basically a paramilitary communist who was going to turn us into Venezuela and bring back the three-day week and have you know rubbish bags piling up in Trafalgar Square and you were like, but how can this guy be dangerous when you were saying he was, uh, you know, a complete joke only six months ago? And you can't say that someone's pathetic and weak and weaselly and then in the next breath turn around and say they're a monster and they must be stopped, which is exactly the same thing that happened with, with Trump. He was just this Yahoo who was invited on stuff. And people get into this. I know mean, I talked about this before, the kind of the post-gaff paddock, right? Where yeah. actually the gaffes have been so, or gaffes or bad opinions or whatever you want to call them, have been so thoroughly digested and still are not a, a, a barrier to their candidacy that they then lose all potency. And it's just sort of accepted that that's what that person thinks about that. So not funny. That's what I'm, I'm saying. Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's not big and it's not clever. Yeah. 
<sighs> and yeah. then he arrived at the palace and there was a whole thing about whether or not his agenda was radical enough and they were talking to James Callaghan and, and Neil Kinnock and he was saying well actually I think James Callaghan was saying well, actually his agenda is quite radical uh, for example House of Lords reform and I was like wow remember in 1997 when we had all toff you know like uh, that that was kind of just not... like thousands of them yeah just, just like oodles and oodles of them every person called Peregrine in the entire country was penned into the House of Lords and and, La- and New Labour um, anyway, I know this is me sounding extremely like a sad bitterite but it was a really nice election to watch because everybody that I like in British politics and have respect for was really really happy uh, about it and there was just real camaraderie between Kinnock and Callaghan which was actually quite sweet to see as well, like everyone was being really nice to Neil Kinnock because every so often someone would ask him a question like hey, hey Neil <laughs> didn't you feel like this might have happened to you in 1992? And then he'd sort of look a bit wistful and then we'd all reflect on how Labour lost the 1992 election when it wasn't expecting to. So I think it's, it's tricky to pick a favourite one, right? It's a bit like being, I imagine it's how I would feel if I was asked to pick a favourite child. Partly because they're enjoyable as mainly as part of a wider sequence, right? They are actually also great telly, which you'd expect, seeing as they are flagship programmes with a great deal of money behind them. But the mostly, foreshadowing is really great, actually, when they just bring on someone that you know is going to be a big character later, and you're like, oh, or a big issue. There was a great bit in the 1997 one where they talked about the fact that because all the potential candidates for the Tory leadership, apart from Ken Clark, all were agreed in Europe, it wasn't going to be a big issue in this Conservative leadership contest. And you were like, oh, the, like the Chekhov's gun is there right in the middle of the stage. Yeah, I mean, that is the the brilliant thing about elections is because particularly late on when they have to fill time, everyone's a bit tired. You will always have, sometimes from the same person, the hilariously correct in hindsight and the hilariously wrong in hindsight statement. And yeah, they're both always sort of great fun. It's a bit like... You enjoyed 2017 a lot more or a lot less, I guess, depending on your perspective. If you've had to sit through 2015, you also spot interesting things by watching lots of them in a a sequence, right? Now, obviously, it is well known that the Conservative 2017 election was more of a table wine, as vintages go. (laughs) But you can really tell the difference between that. In In both 2015 and 2017, the Conservatives knew in 2015 that things had gone well and they thought they were going to in government but they were not expecting to win in 2017 they knew things had gone poorly but not uh, quite how poorly. but they thought it would all all be all right on the night and the other fascinating thing is in 2015 when the exit poll comes out and they get their own private returns and it's like oh we might oh we we've definitely we are clearly the largest we are clearly the only people who can form a government they all are very quickly given this kind of like what these results show is and we have clearly won and they have clearly lost and we're the only party in form of government we have the big gain yeah. we like we have a commanding lead in terms of number of seats and actually on on the labor side yes there's that weird moment where they're like oh we're told we have Harriet Harman and they're like oh no we don't where they literally <laughs> were just like what's the line but they did like once have And all it. everyone in Scotland basically like hid in the toilet, didn't they? Because yeah. they were like, There's nothing that we can say about this that doesn't isn't just crying and but, screaming. But they did have yeah, they did eventually have their line of this shows the gov- the coalition has lost its majority. Which is a stupid line, right, in terms of sort of logic. But if your hey, job it's is three AM if your job is to go on air and not condemn Ed Miliband, it's a brilliant line. And that is in many ways like the er example of why you can have a good campaign and lose. and Because in 2015, both campaigns did the right thing in terms of their sort of hygiene and getting through the night. In 2017, actually, the Labour Party had the sense, you know, you sort of had, you know, Emily Thornberry, John McDonald just being like, look, we haven't had many results yet. Who knows if this is correct? 
who knows? Yeah, John McDonald was there for the exit poll, and he doesn't—he doesn't do what you imagine internally. You must have been doing, which is just, go, which is probably pretty much what I did, which is just go <laughs> for fully ten to fifteen minutes. Whereas what did happen with the Conservatives that night is you could tell it was, yeah, I mean, obviously you could tell it was a bad campaign for many reasons, not least the exit poll. But um, right, even by the end of the night, you still had ministers and MPs giving wildly different answers about what had gone wrong, when really you just like, you know, something like, you know, like. This has been a contentious election and we've been punished for being too honest, right? Yeah, Which is we're an, a divided an, country and that's what it's shown us. But, you know, we have made big gains in some unexpected places, for example, in Scotland. Yeah, so that seems that it, it exposed in micro the problems of, of the overall election. I think, you know, so I haven't watched 1997 for a while. Uh, Do. It's really great. I mean, you will cry. But the thing is, you really have to invest in a lot of time to enjoy 1997. Because I would <laughs> have say... have to watch all the ones from 1979 onwards. Well, I'd say so ideally you, you'd start from 79 to get the full thing. But you actually have to watch 1992 to get the... Partly because there are so many people who, like, their role is a direct sequel in 90... Yeah, of which the best one is the bit when they're like, Basildon, who's going to win this in 1992? And then David Amistad this weird goal celebration and you can tell all of the Labour people are just like oh this is awful and Heseltine comes on and they ask him a question about like a hung parliament he's like who oh who thinks it's going to be a hung parliament you do but you're getting shock after shock aren't you as opposed to 1997 <laughs> where he kind of comes on at one point looking like someone's just shot his dog strangled his strangled dog, his dog. <laughs> um not him the lawyers would probably want us to um, clarify that he did clarify he did not strangle his Alsatian. But, you know, you, you enjoy them more when you have the kind of sort of... So Didn't I would... you watch a really, really early one where there was someone going, and I look, there are some mouse have just broken into the studio, so all the ladies are on their chairs. Oh, yeah, in, in, in 1964, no, maybe it's 50... I mean, 59 has a weird moment where they're just like, you're in that quiet period from like 10 to 11, because obviously election counts happened quicker those days because they hadn't cut local authorities to the bone. That, this is actually true, right? That, mm-hmm. that is one of the reasons why elections are getting later. And they're like, oh, you know, we thought you might be bored, so we're going to show you some yeah. pictures of like the, the, ladies the attractive the ladies who are, who are typing <laughs> and helping us, yeah. us like crunch the numbers. And then the camera quite literally pans over the, the young women who are doing these sort of fairly high-tech jobs. And basically you have this thing of whatever the original Dimbleby was called, Oliver, Peter, Richard, Richard, Richard Dimbleby, Basically going, you know, doing his own sort of shag, marry, kill, including the real low point of him just being like, well, get the camera away from that one. No one wants to see that. Yeah, and and I'm paraphrasing, but I am not making it worse than it was. But that's one of the things that's really astonishing at 1997. I watched a good chunk and it had, yeah, it had David Dimbleby, it had Callahan, it had Neil Kinnock, it had Richard Attenborough, it had Jeremy Paxman, it had possibly teenage Nick Robinson and the only woman on that the whole time was Shirley Williams who was kind of bundled on for a minute and it was the last you you remember just also what a big effect the quote-unquote Blair babes but you know the 101 women that came in because of the all women shortlist just meant that you could have so many more female guests and actually then there were so many more female commentators I think they had Kate Adie at account but pretty much everyone else was a dude it really is incredible to see just the sheer blokiness of politics in 1997 which also makes you realise how 
you then look again at the pictures of Tony Blair posing with his kids on the steps of Downing Street and again what kind of you know how different that felt as well I meant to switch it on for like five minutes just to kind of tap in just to sort of like so I could laugh at some 90s uh, interior design and terrible like Windows 96 graphics but I stuck with it for more than an hour I mean maybe you can get away with starting at 83 and they're all on YouTube they're, they're really good 83's also got the best of the theme music with this great very 80s sequence well, there's some great Corbyn appearances in some of the 80s ones as well, aren't there? So that'd be good for kind of foreshadowing purposes. Anyway, if you have a favourite moment from any of the election broadcasts, why not go out and have a drink with some friends, live a little? But also send us a tweet or email. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. It's produced by Caroline Crampton and recorded by India Bork. Our music is by the Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. The New Statesman podcast is now on Twitter at NS underscore podcasts. There you can suggest questions for you ask us. Suggest what new pop culture sensations seriously should cover. Send insults. memes to John Elledge about houses. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that's at NS underscore podcasts.